1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: Prayer indeed does change things, as my next guest has found out. He is Dr. David Levy. He practices neurosurgery in Southern California. His articles have been widely published in a variety of neurosurgical journals, and he's an accomplished speaker and a co-author of a brand new book entitled Gray Matter. A neurosurgeon discovers the power of prayer one patient at a time. And Dr. Levy, thanks so much for taking time to be with us on the program this evening. It's, it's good to be with you, Craig. Uh, I, I found your your book and your observations on the power of prayer very encouraging, particularly in a day and age when there, there's so much being bandied about concerning what's happened with uh, health care in America. I got into an interesting discussion with a friend of mine who's involved in health care, and there have been some discussion about the fact that uh, more and more he's finding uh, both physicians and hospitals referring to the people that come through their doors as clients, to which I took umbrage and said, you know, uh, you may want to let your colleagues know that we patients – don't prefer to be referred to as clients because it just seems to kind of reduce us down to nothing more than somebody who helps bring money. And while I understand it's an important part of what needs to be done to, you know, keep the lights on in the hospital and and to pay, uh, you know, the folks that provide the services that they do to keep us all healthy. Nevertheless, it it was encouraging to see the perspective that you share inside the pages of gray matter that there are some doctors out there who who still want to have a good bedside manner and who, in fact, uh, don't see us as clients but rather as patients. That's
3: absolutely right, Craig. Yeah, there are uh, quite a number of doctors, I think, that that really got into medicine because they care and they want to see uh, not just uh, uh, the patient necessarily physically get better, although that is our, our goal. That's what we are doing this for. But we also want to see all aspects of health. The physical is just one aspect. There's emotional, relational, and spiritual health, and we want to address all of those. We want to see the patient as a whole person.
2: Has your profession sort of succumbed to much of what we've seen in the scientific community in in the last hundred years, say, Uh, and that is those that would insist that there needs to be a brick wall, as much as we've seen a brick wall between science and so-called religion or science and God, has there been a trend toward that as well within the medical profession where, you know, it's okay if a patient wants to believe in God, but once they enter into the doctor's office, the hospital, the surgery room, uh, we need to leave God outside and never blend the two
3: you know that is that is how i was trained honestly and um i i am ashamed to admit there was a time in my career where i um i just thought the patients were sort of wasting their time wasting my time um because i believed the surgeon's motto you know heal with steel or you know when in doubt cut it out and some of those uh uh, things uh, we use to just uh it's it it's not all For the patient, we we have our own agendas that that as we move into medicine. Is
2: there some tendency too, maybe? uh, And I know the the effort and work that needs to go into studying and preparing to become a successful surgeon of any level. Certainly, at your level, dealing with you know surgery on the brain, neurosurgeon uh, is not a casual profession by any means. Is there a sense maybe? within some within the medical community that you know why do we want to enter into praying for a patient or praying with a patient prior to a procedure i'm the doctor i'm in charge i'm handling this almost sounding as if at a level maybe while not uh openly recognized almost a subconscious sense of well i'm not going to bring god into this equation because in my operating room i am god
3: you know that is that is um I think very correct. Uh, unfortunately, that is how I saw it as well. I, I, I admit that in the book that I, I really didn't want to bring God in because it, it did sort of make things complicated. I, I wanted to I wanted to, to take the credit for the surgery and things like that. I mean, it is a tremendous amount of time you spend learning these highly technical skills, and so you actually would like credit for those. and. Um, and so to, to pray or to have someone think it was their prayer that did it instead of you, at some level that's potentially offensive. But you know for myself, I realized, you know after I'd done a technically perfect 11 hour surgery and the patient you know, died the next day of a blood clot, I, 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 that was one of the things that woke me up to say, "Wow, I can do perfect surgery, but I don't control the outcome. Mm. And so, I think we, we you know, and if we 're honest, then we start looking for well well, well what else is it well what 's happening here? Well, what about uh, the spiritual aspect of of this case because something 's happening. Uh, I did everything right, but um, but i didn 't get the outcome i wanted
2: yeah there, there, there's that having the, to kind of succumb to the realization that there's something bigger than me. Behind all of this, and your story is an interesting one because you, as you out- detail inside the pages of gray matter, struggled with this idea of to pray or not to pray, and <laughs> what that would mean, and kind of going back and forth. And then, you know, a, a, a wonderful, almost serendipitous chapter out of the book entitled "Physician, Heal Thyself." You go in one day to your own dentist. Yeah, T- tell <laughs> us, tell us what happened when when that light came on.
3: Well, I'm sitting in the dentist chair, and. Um my dentist—I needed to have a filling replaced. He draws up his syringe full of Novocaine, and you know, I, Craig, I've spent a long time in training so that I could, uh, so that I didn't have to be on the receiving end of those needles. So
2: you're uh, a neurosurgeon? I mean, <laughs> come on! This is this is a minor little dental procedure here. You wimp.
3: Yes, but as when it comes to injections, remember it's more blessed to give than to receive. <laughs> So I tense up, and my friend sees me. You know, he's trying to hide that needle down below the chair. You know how they sure, yeah,
2: (laughs) not quite notice it, yeah.
3: (laughs) So I'm tensing up, and uh, he puts his hand on my shoulder, and he just says a short prayer. He said, "You know, God guide my hands. uh, You know, bless David, something like that." And then I felt this peace come over me. It was, it was just an unusual. I mean. The needle stick still hurt a bit, but it wasn't the same level of apprehension. It wasn't the same anxiety level. And on my way home that day, I said, you know, I really should be praying for my patients. I really feel like the Lord was speaking to me
2: uh, as I went home. And interesting how your dentist didn't say now. Come on, David, you're a trained, experienced physician. You deal with surgeries significantly more, uh, you know, uh, dangerous and, and risky than this on an every single day. Be a man about it. He could have said any of those things, yeah. but instead of doing that, he chose to do something very, very different. He, he He recognized, number one, his own need for God and the role that the Lord plays in this process, which ironically, as you point out, suddenly gave you a greater sense of, of comfort
3: exactly exactly and, and and so when I went to, to I, I basically said well wow that you know that's as good as Valium I mean I should be giving people this well, you know wh- why am I not at least asking them not pushing it on them but I think it's also very important to you know to ask but I tell you what that first time I decided to pray I was terrified I walked up the stairs my heart was pounding uh and, of course, my busy preoperative area in the hospital was much busier than this dentist office, where it was just, just he and I. There wasn't even a, a hygienist at that point. And um, so I decide to pray with my patient of the day, and I walk up to her bed, and everything seems fine. She's got her two daughters there, but there's a nurse. There's a nurse, and there's no way I'm going to pray in front of a nurse. I mean, this, this I've decided has got to be a top-secret situation. I don't want anyone to see me, actually, offer to pray with someone lest they think I'm, you know, one of those nuts or something. Of course,
2: you're a senior medical staff. You could have just kicked her out of the room.
3: <laughs> I, I do, right. But I was, I was trying to be sort of very smooth about everything uh, while I'm introducing prayer for the first time. And so I'm trying to outlast her, and I'm waiting, and finally I, you know, say, okay, I'll have to pray another day. And I, I back up to the nurse's station I didn't leave. I decided, you know what, I'm not going to give up. Maybe if I wait a few minutes. And so, you know how we do, we pretend to. I've got a page and I pretended to be on the telephone, uh. you know. <laughs> so I wouldn't look too suspicious. It's, I mean, honestly, Craig, it was as if I were going to, you know, casing her room like I was going to commit a crime or something. I'm just sort of looking you know, like I was going to steal the woman's purse. I'm just waiting for the nurse to leave. Finally, Finally, she leaves. And I, I scurry up, and just before I get to the bed, here comes the anesthesiologist. I turned right back around. <laughs> there was no way I was going to pray in front of another doctor. And, and so I waited a little longer. Finally, they left, and I went up to her bedside, and before anyone else could come, and I said, uh, Mrs. Jones, you know, would you mind if, if I said a prayer with you for your surgery? And she looked at her daughters, and they looked at her and shrugged their shoulders and said, Fine. So I um, I put I I was thinking about putting my hand on her shoulder, but neurosurgeons are not very touchy feely. We we generally don't touch people unless they're under general anesthesia. They uh, they have a covered with that blue drape, and then we we use a scalpel. So, uh, but I but that's what had been done to me. This my dentist friend had put his hand on my shoulder, and so I put my hand on her shoulder, and I said. Uh, her daughters moved in, they bowed their heads, and I just said, uh, God, thank you for Mrs. Jones. You made the vessels in her brain, and you can help me to fix them. And I just ask for skill and for wisdom in this case and for success. In Jesus' name, amen. I looked up. She was weeping. She's wiping tears from her eyes. Her two daughters are, are wiping tears away from their eyes. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, what, what have I done? You know, what, what, what is this power? And, you know, so I did what any surgeon would do at that point. I patted her on the arm, and I left it for the nurse to deal with. <laughs> and here she came with her Kleenexes handing them out, and I hit the automatic door button and opened those doors and, and went off uh, to my surgery, which, uh, honestly, I had more joy in that surgery than I have ever had in my practice before. Because I, the, the patients look to me as if I'm God, but for the first time in my life I had said, Look, I'm not God. I'm very good at what I do, but I'm not God. But I would be willing to talk to him with you if that's what you'd like.
2: Well, and the amazing thing about all of this, too, is that sense that, you know, as much as we as the uh, patients uh, want to know that you know what you're doing, we also want to know that you care. And that's one of the real keys here. If you've just joined our conversation, Dr. David Levy is with us tonight. We're talking about his new book, The Experience of a Neurosurgeon Discovering the Power of Prayer, One Patient at a Time, the new book called Gray Matter. A brief time out back with some closing thoughts from Dr. Levy as this edition of Lifeline continues.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: And back to our conversation, Dr. David Levy with us tonight, a look at gray matter. A neurosurgeon discovers the power of prayer, one patient at a time. As you develop the the faith, the strength, the willingness to kind of take the risk, I guess we'd call it, doctor, and, and begin praying for your patients, what kind of a change have you seen come over, not just your practice, but your own personal relationship with God?
3: Well... Craig, I think that uh, that so many of us are burned out on medicine, and uh, I think it's, uh, I believe it's partially due to the fact that, well, we are to give glory to God, and I think so much of medicine is designed around getting glory for the physician, getting the referrals for the physician, and I've certainly uh, been guilty of that for many years. And so there's something about, um, as, as we give glory to God, there, it, there is a change that occurs in me. I, I, you know, just somehow the medicine takes on a different flavor. Um, you know, I can give you an example of a, uh, a patient named Ron who came in with uh, a, a problem in his, in the brain. He had a, a, a number of other problems. He was only 40 years old, and he had um, arthritis in his neck and his back, and so I, I began to ask him about um, his emotional health. And and I asked him something for the first time. I'd never asked a patient this before. I said, uh, Ron, is there someone that you can't forgive? And he's this enormous man. He's this uh, marine and enormous guy. And so he sort of looked at me with this, you know, very bold face. And I'm on one of those little rolling stools. And so I'm starting to roll away from him, (laughs) rolling back to the wall. And finally he said, my mother and i said excuse me i thought you know maybe his drill sergeant or his father and he said no my mother and i said well, well ron what what happened and he said well my dad left when i was young but my uh my mom you know shacked up with a number of different guys and they would drink and they would uh they would get in fights with her and i got between uh, one of these men and my mother and i got knocked down the stairs and i i stood up and i said come on mom let's get out of here." She said, "No, I'm not leaving." And I've hated her. He said, "I've hated her since that time." And I've, um, in thirty—that was thirty years ago. And so I said, "Wow, Ron, that's that's what I'm looking for." But I'm going to ask you to do something really courageous. I'm going to ask you to forgive her. I said, uh, "You know, I want to help you. Would you be willing to do that?" So he he paused for a few moments and then said, "Okay, yeah, I've have I've hung on to this long enough." And so you know, I led him through a a prayer, a declaration of forgiveness um, for his mother and for this guy who uh, knocked him down the stairs and and then I said, Ron, um, you've forgiven. Is there anything that you need to be forgiven for? And he said, yeah. And so he, um, I said, well, who who forgives sins? And he said, Jesus does. And so he, he began to confess his, you know, his sins. Because, you know, when when people hurt us, we generally hurt others that's just the way it happens And so this man you know walked out of my office you know like a foot off the ground he he felt just emotionally and physically so much better he still had to have the surgery and the surgery went well but even six months later he was still joyful because i had taken the time now the interesting thing when he when he stood up uh, after i finished uh, the office visit he said uh, he said i feel like calling my mother and he hadn't talked to her in 30 years. And so he, he, they had a family reunion. I mean, you know, that little um, conversation had an incredible ripple effect through that whole family because his mother had started going back to church in New York, and he flew back there, and other members of the family were getting together. And, and, and I think as physicians or even as friends, um, you know we can we can help each other forgive. I mean, if you listen to a friend or a colleague complain about their, you know, their ex or their boss or something, uh, and you've heard it a number of times, say, "Hey, I've heard that enough. Let, let's forgive. Uh, let's let's get this. This is not good for you. This is not good for your health." And so I, I really emphasize in the book the uh, the health benefits of forgiveness.
2: Certainly, it, it's had not only an impact on. Your practice, but your own personal life too.
3: Mm. It, it has, yes. I, I've I've certainly, um, obviously, I have to practice what I preach. So I, I um, uh, you know, I have to forgive. I have to, um, you know, I've, actually have to make time in my schedule, usually lunch hour, to to spend talking with patients because oftentimes an office visit is not enough time. And so I, there's nothing I'd enjoy more than spending my lunch hour talking about a patient's spiritual concerns. It's it's a it's just a beautiful time of my day. Um, and so yeah, my, my life has changed and I think I think for the better.
2: Well we certainly appreciate you sharing with us tonight, Doctor. I mean it, it just, just goes so nicely hand in glove with the topic we had in hour number one this evening of the importance of the church getting involved and in impacting the world around us. And what easier, better place to start than to begin incorporating the power of prayer, not just in our lives privately, but also publicly as well, as Dr. Levy has done in his own practice. The book, Gray Matter, a neurosurgeon discovers the power of prayer, one patient at a time. The book published by Tyndale House and available at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as, as well as through amazon.com. And uh, once again, our thanks to its author, our guest today, Dr. David Levy. And now
1: back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: What to say, what to say. That often is the challenge for a lot of believers as we are sharing our faith with others. Now we know certainly that there's um, uh, sort of a dualistic component when it comes to uh, the whole matter of being a Christian. Certainly we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, body, and soul, and our neighbor is ourself. And we are also to go and to share the good news of this gospel into all of the world uh, the Great Commandment and the Great Commission, and yet for a lot of us, uh, the Great Great um, Commandment, yeah, we we can do okay with that, but we find ourselves oftentimes challenged, particularly in this day and age, in fulfilling our responsibility in partaking in the sharing of the Great commission. Um, That sense of sharing your faith with someone who wishes to be combative. They want to get into an argument with you. You are fearful, perhaps, because you just don't want confrontation. You've never experienced sharing your faith with someone before, and you're afraid to open up the proverbial can of worms because there's this atheist in the next cubicle that's just been dying to pick a fight with you. How do you go about sharing your faith under these circumstances, particularly in a region like the San Francisco Bay Area where we are wrought with paganism and atheism and doubt and those that would feel as if anybody who believes in Christianity or the Jesus of the Bible must clearly be nuts. Well, Donald Johnson joins us to offer insights. He's written a new book called How to Talk to a Skeptic, an easy-to-follow guide for natural conversations and effective apologetics. And Donald, great to have you on the program tonight.
4: Thanks for having me, Craig. I appreciate
2: it. You come at this from a very rich educational background. I'll mention for the benefit of listeners, you have a B.A. in theology um, from San Jose Christian College, so you've been here in the Bay Area, an M.A. in Christian apologetics from Biola University, and an M.A. in theology from Franciscan University of Steubenville. So you've you've gone to some pretty well-known schools and received... Quite the deep education. Now, sharing this whole topic of apologetics, some Christians hear that and they kind of get put off and they go, oh, that's for an expert. That is for somebody like Hank Hanegraaff or um, somebody like a Donald Johnson to engage in. I, as just the everyday average Christian, can't possibly be expected to engage a skeptic in some discourse of Christian apologetics, can I?
4: (laughs) Well, I think if you approached it that way, that you have to have the big uh, education um, yeah, you're right. We probably wouldn't, and that's one of the uh, problems. But no, I wrote the book specifically to address people who don't have the education, who uh, don't necessarily have the conversational debating skills of a William Lane Craig or someone like that. They're not interested in getting into the combative argument. Uh, no, this is this is for people who you know have that uncle who comes over on Thanksgiving and has a lot of questions, or that coworker, and it's specifically addressed to show you that, yeah, you can have a constructive conversation with even the most uh, hardened skeptics.
2: And I guess at the end of the day, Don, this is not really about engaging in debate um, or demonstrating our um, uh, verbal skills at confrontation. Uh, it really comes down to that core issue of being ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within, isn't it?
4: Yeah, absolutely, Craig. That's exactly when I think of apologetics. It's First Peter 3.15. It's the verse you just quoted. It's just having um, good questions and then the good answer, the, uh, the the understanding of the Jesus story that you can share with people, but doing it in a way that's not going to lead to a dead end.
2: So what is it about us as Christians, particularly in this day and age? And you've spent a good time here in the San Francisco Bay Area, so you're fully aware of of some of the, the intellectual proudness of our Bay Areans here, who, uh, who tend to um, uh, celebrate paganism and uh, atheism and and uh, love to engage in barbed uh, debate with Christians and, and, and tear us down. Does some of this fear come out of a sense that, well, we, we're trying to avoid confrontation, um, we're, we're concerned we won't be able to articulately respond to their questions or their comments, and, and maybe a good dose of our own sense of anxieties in all of this? I just wonder how much of this goes to just to the heart of a lot of believers today being you know, biblically illiterate and, and finding themselves and feeling themselves unprepared to share their faith.
4: Yeah, I think you're right. I think a lot of it is that we don't feel like we have those answers. But on the other hand, it's partially, I think, some mistakes that we make in approaching the skeptic that leads us into that defensive position. So, I mean, we're scared that we're not going to have the right answer. But I think in my approach, I've learned over the years, I mean, I used to be that guy. I used to be that guy who just liked to debate and always tried to have just the right answer and just the right comeback at, at the right time. And I learned over the years that doesn't actually usually end very well. You usually end up in a roadblock. And so now I I stand back a little bit and ask a lot of questions at the beginning and try to listen a lot and move the, the conversation in a direction where you're not on the defensive all the time and you don't have to have all those answers. And you're actually trying to get the skeptic to do the thinking and to have some answers for their own views and how they understand the world and how they understand christianity so it's not so much you're right it's not so much that it's a battle between two people but a constructive relationship building conversation where both sides have to add something to the mix
2: sadly oftentimes these kinds of conversations end up in one feeling as if they have to defend the faith meaning they're 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 put on the defensive. And so here we might feel um, wholly short to answer challenges concerning uh, certain scientific points or uh, points related to... observations about so-called uh, errancy in Scripture, things of this sort. I mean, oftentimes we'll see this sort of distown, distilled down by some as a debate between um, faith or science, for example, or or the rational or irrational. So you're, you're not suggesting that we, we engage to set ourselves up for debate, but rather, what, engage a person? Is this as much about sharing our faith? Is it also getting the person that we're talking to to get them to share their heart and where they're coming from?
4: Yeah, I think that's the key is, first of all, to, to understand where they're coming from. And so on two levels, well, really on three levels, I ask them what kind of background they have. You know, tell me a little bit about your life and if you have any experience in Christianity or the Church. And then I ask them what they think uh, to be true about the world as far as uh, how do you answer the big questions of life? I understand that you reject Christianity. Okay. Tell me what you do accept, though. Give me a positive case for something that you think is actually true not just what you think is false. And then I ask them what they think Christianity actually teaches. And I think if you set out your conversation just just trying to find out those three uh, facts about the person in a very relational way and doing a lot of listening and not not defending Christianity at all, not jumping in when they throw an objection or, or some sort of sarcastic comment, you know, just, just let that go and just listen. And what ends up happening is you can develop a comparison of worldviews. So way down the line, after you've learned a lot about the person, it's, it's given you a chance to then compare the Christianity that you know to be true from the Bible with their worldview and the Christianity they hold. And, and you'll inevitably find out that they don't hold to the Christianity that you do, that they're rejecting a, a, a straw man argument, or they're just a caricature of what the Bible teaches. And when you set it up like that, you ask a few questions, you set up a comparison of world views, it actually does give you a chance to come in and then share the gospel, but not in a preachy way. You're just clarifying what Christianity actually teaches. You can say, oh, well, that's interesting. I understand where you're coming from, but let me share with you how I understand the Bible and how I understand Christianity, and then we can can talk on that level. So it's a lot of clarification and sharing the bio, or sharing the gospel then in a non-confrontational, very relational way.
2: You use a word that I want to have you elaborate upon when we return after a time out. You use the word relational, and I think there can be some important insights and keys extracted from this one word as we talk about how to talk to a skeptic. My guest is Donald Day Johnson. This is his new book, by the way, newly published by put my cheaters on here, Bethany House, and you'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Jarrell is laughing in there. Hey, you reach a certain age, kiddo, you know, you, you got to put the cheaters on. Also, the book available through Amazon.com, and uh, we'll share more in our conversation. Dig a bit deeper into this topic. How do you go about successfully sharing your faith, giving that answer for the hope that lies within as you talk to a skeptic?
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: We continue our conversation tonight. Donald Johnson, my guest, the book is called How to Talk to... A skeptic, you know, at the end of the day, we talk about sometimes dealing with, with the, the hardline, almost professional skeptics, Donald. Uh, I'm thinking of those in the class of a, a Christopher Hitchens, uh, Richard Dawkins, Bill Maher, even on that list. But it's interesting. I've heard some of them debated or some of the arguments that they put forward. And I've often thought to myself, you know, at the end of the day, it's not only Christians that are the ones that have to defend their views. These guys come out with some pretty outlandish comments as well.
4: Yeah, no, you're right. They, uh, not only do they have to defend their worldview, and you're right, I don't think they do a terribly good job of it. And, and often they're not asked to, which is interesting. Most of the time, if you notice how those guys debate, is they debate against Christianity. They're not usually asked to present a positive case for materialism or whatever it is they happen to hold. And, and that's one key, I think, to talking to, to either professional skeptics or the uh, uncle or the guy next door in the cubicle is that they should be asked to have present their worldview, to think about it probably. I mean, a lot of times people haven't thought about it, and then defend that. And that's a real key to having a constructive conversation, I think, is that you have to think about what you believe in a positive way, not just be anti-Christian. And a lot of them are anti-Christian.
2: We talked prior to the break with the previous caller about this whole issue of of, of the agnostic out there, and I guess in this day and age, what with uh, uh, recent discoveries related to the so-called God particle, um, irreducible design, uh, things like um, intelligent design, uh, that there's more and more scientific information out there, too, that also lends credence uh, to, to the so-called Genesis account. Does that also stand in our favor in terms of sharing our faith and making it a case for the existence of God?
4: Yeah, I think the evidence, wherever you find it, is always in the Christian's favor, because if it's true, it's true, and Christianity happens to be true about all of the universe. So wherever we find truth, whether that's through scientific investigation or philosophy or psychology or wherever it is, that truth is, if it's accurate, if they're not just making stuff up or presenting false claims, obviously, but if it's accurate, it's going to line up with the Christian worldview. And so, yeah, we never be, never need to be afraid of new discoveries, you know. The truth, wherever it's found, is going to match up. And and I think that's one key to having a, a good conversation, is to not, you know, sometimes we present it as, well, I mean, there's these facts over here, but I just take on faith that Jesus is my Savior. And by that I mean I put my brain in my back pocket, and I don't have to think about it anymore, and I don't have any evidence for it, but I just believe well, no, that, that's not the Christian way, I don't think. God God loves uh, presenting evidence to us, and he gives us plenty of it. Uh, yeah, at the, at
2: the end of the day, Christianity is not some irrational belief system that we just adopt totally by faith, whether or not it might be uh, some fact here or there. I mean, the I- irony is, if we just take the time to do the research, um, we find all kinds of extra-biblical um, uh, information uh, from the archaeological accounts and historical accounts that lead credence to the teachings of what we learn from the Bible.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Every realm of of discovery, I think, uh, should be embraced by the Christian. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, science is a good one. Archaeology is excellent, and it consistently confirms the biblical accounts. Whenever um, science is done right, and and I guess that's a key. I mean, sometimes science is presented as a philosophy rather than a, a uh, mode of, of gathering knowledge, and so they say, well, science has disproven God. But what they mean by that is there is nothing that exists besides matter, and that's all we... Well, no, I mean, we can't accept that. But in general, yeah, every sort of, of uh, knowledge-gathering endeavor that humans do, it's going to line up with Christianity, and so we can embrace that.
2: What do we do with comments uh, such as the person who says, well... I've done some studying of Christianity, and I find that there are uh, pagan myths and accounts of this sort that are made up of the mystic world that seem to be similar to some things that I read in the Gospels, so why should I believe what the Bible says any more than a pagan myth?"
4: Yeah, that's a good question, and that's a very popular objection these days, and becoming more so, it seems. Uh, what I'd like to do is, first of all, clarify, all right, what parallel myth are you talking about? Let's Let's look at the data and see what the facts actually are. And then some guys, they do just stop there, and, and that's fine. I mean, they try to disassociate Christianity from all the pagan myths. Actually, how, the, the approach I take is that I embrace a lot of the parallels that are out there. I say, yeah, you know what, there's, there's some parallels. I mean, uh, there's some pagan myths that are uh, similar in some respects to the Christian worldview, but I say that's actually to be expected, I think, if Christianity is true. Because according to Christianity, God is the creator of all, he put Adam and Eve in the garden, and then humanity spread out from there. So, and he's revealed himself, Romans 1 assures us, that no one is left without knowledge of God. So we have this general revelation to all people at all times. If that's true, it makes sense that when people try to explain reality through their myths, that there would actually be some parallels, that they're, if, they're, if they're interacting with an objective reality, and that is the God of the Bible, that there would be some similarities. And so I take sort of a C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton approach to this and say, those myths are a precursor, they're a shadow. It's not that Christianity took the stories from those myths, it's that those myths actually took their stories from Christianity. It's the other way around. And so Christianity is this, the actual story, the true story, the historical story, God in time and space. And the myths are the shadows that are, uh, they, they come from that, I think. And so, yeah, I, I take sort of a... A broader approach to that, embrace the truths that we can embrace with people, and then try to show them that, well, Christianity is not like, it's not the same as those myths. I mean, it's history. Jesus appeared as a man in Galilee 2,000 years ago. So that, that's, you know, a, a hard fact. What Bye. about
2: those that take the dismissive approach to say, well, you know, I've, I've seen the way these Christians act. They behave fairly badly. I've seen the hypocrisy within Christianity, and uh, I don't go to church because I don't want to be a hypocrite. What of that argument?
4: Yeah, that's a common one, and I think, uh, on one hand, you can sort of uh, take a coldly logical approach and say, <laughs> Say you <"Well>, agree? Yeah, <laughs> of course, yeah, you agree. Hey, uh, you know, we're all sinners, we're all hypocritical at some point, uh, but that's what Christianity teaches. Christianity doesn't teach that we're all perfect, and that, you know, if if Christianity is true, then all people will be perfect. I mean, you don't see that anywhere in the Bible. We're sinners, saved by grace, and and uh, being transformed into the likeness of Christ, but that's an ongoing process. And so, on one hand, it, I mean, logically, it's not a very sound argument. I think, just sort of emotionally and psychologically, you want to just embrace that and say, you know what, I, I've hurt people, I've been hurt by people, I mean, that's how that's how life is, and I apologize if that works, you know, on behalf of my fellow Christians. But, really, that doesn't speak to Jesus. I mean, certainly Jesus didn't teach us to do that, right? And Jesus wasn't like that. So let's talk about Jesus uh, and and see if if his message resonates.
2: It's amazing when you think about it um, in the arena of Christian uh, apologetics, how logical so much of this is if you just bring it back to the core issue of being relationship-centric, and as we mentioned a couple of segments ago, at the end of the day, that's really what this is all about anyway. You're not trying to create animosity. You're trying to build a relationship, and you wish to build a relationship to share your faith in the hopes that the person that you're sharing with will sometime or someday have a relationship with Jesus too. And so when you look at it from that angle, then this becomes far less about trying to win my point or beat you down or, uh, you know, be the winner of the forensic uh, team, but rather to simply love a person to the saving knowledge of Christ. The book, How to Talk to a Skeptic, published again by Bethany House and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. And our thanks to author Donald Johnson, also a Christian apologist, for being with us tonight and offering some great insights.
1: Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group. All rights reserved